This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. One of the funny things about being a fan of Jamie Loftus is that she just comes out with gems from time to time. And if you don't know who Jamie Loftus is, you're missing out on about four great podcasts. Go give her a Google. I just worked through the Kathy one recently that was super duper duper fun. Um, and of course, the Bechdel cast is fantastic. And Lolita, we've, we've spoken about lots of these podcasts. But she has this line where she says, if only I had the confidence of a mediocre white man which I think is just the most fantastic thing. So I've decided this episode to not give it any thought and just come out swinging with the confidence, (laughs) embracing my true identity of being a mediocre white bloke. Look, I'm super excited because... As we said last episode with Alexi, we are very much outsider art when it comes to both film and podcasting. So I'm really excited to have easily the most researched guest we've ever had on our show Back on Spooko, the one and only Lee Tran Lam. Welcome back to Spooko. Oh, thank you. I love that you did the politician thing of like not saying how unqualified I am. Because really, I'm well researched in one particular area, which is maybe food. <laughs> but I've only in my entire life watched maybe like five horror movies because I'm a total scaredy cat. Oh, your expertise is deep, not broad, LT. It's good. It's fine. It works. And also keep in mind, you know, this podcast is myself and Peach who has taught us over the past 113 episodes how tight the law can be when you say certain things. So it's really important to never <laughs> commit to anything publicly. So to yes. your point, yes, I do talk like a politician. I talk like someone who never wants to be sued for any of the things that I promised in the past. But you are a certified scaredy cat. That's why I'm really excited because, number one, you bring the research to the show, but, number two, you are another scaredy cat like Peach to the point where Sydney Film Festival is on right now. I had a free ticket to a British horror film that was one of like the hot tickets of the festival in the same suburb you live you could have literally (laughs) left your house walked maybe 50 meters to go to this screening and you were like i'm sorry that sounds you looked at the synopsis and you said that sounds too scary for me confirm or deny no that's true that's true as i told you before i think my threshold of scary that i can handle is like uh, the really unconvincing vampires on Buffy. Like, Buffy is as scary <laughs> as I can handle. With the morphed up faces, yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. right. The bad makeup, it's really hard to get scared over over that. And I think if I, I think maybe it's, should I just list, like, the six horror films please, I've seen? Please, please. In, love... in order of terror, if you can. Yeah. yeah, try to order them in terms of how yeah. scary you find them. <laughs> yeah, with the scariest for last, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Lowest level of scary. Maybe The Host, which I did on this podcast mm-hmm. yes, quite a yes. few episodes ago. And that's not too scary because it's a big CGI monster and the CGI is from, what, 
quite a while ago. It's very mm. dated. That's 2006, CGI. wasn't it? That's like 15-year-old yeah. CGI. It's yeah. like a million yeah. years ago in terms of CGI. I mean, Lord of the Rings is uh, like now unwatchable. I'm not sure if you guys have seen it. It's like, <laughs> what is this? Yeah. <laughs> but like being scared of the monster in the host is like being scared of an emoji. Like it's not that, you know, terrifying. I just took a sip of tea. <laughs> <laughs> you did a spit take, Shag. You did I a spit take. Did. It's, that is so true. That is so mm. true. And it's also like being scared of a giant metaphor for environmental vandalism, which is, which uh, like, I'm scared of environmental vandalism, but not like, ooh, spooky scared of it. Yeah. I mean, it's a great film to watch, mm. um, worth catching. Uh, I think, uh, Peach, you could handle it. It's not yes. that scary. Mm. We'll put it alongside Train to Busan. Oh, in fact, yes. maybe Korean horror. Oh, no, in fact, there's very scary Korean horror. <laughs> you would not deal with yeah. the wailing. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, okay. Let's yeah. go. Um, and then Love and Monsters, which is a Netflix film that originally we kind of watched because my boyfriend works in visual effects mm. and one of his colleagues got nominated for an Oscar for the visual effects on Love and Monsters. Are we allowed to say? Oh, yeah, I can say my boyfriend, his name is Will, Will Reichelt. What's up, Will? And what's impressive is that usually the films that get nominated for visual effects are like huge movies, like your Lord of the Rings and your Star Warses. And this is like a really low-budget horror movie for Netflix. Uh, And what they were able to do on a tiny budget was impressive. But it's actually a really sweet an enjoyable film. Again, Peach, I think you could probably watch this with your kids. Yes, right? but it is scarier than Host, as we've uh, learned, is it? So, like, we're, uh, we're climbing the... the visual effects are more recent and uh, yeah. higher level than, like, an emoji on your iPhone. So... Can I, can I guess some of the others you're going to have seen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not much left. I reckon we're going to get Pan's Labyrinth in there. I just oh, got that impression. Got, you know what? I totally forgot. I totally forgot that Pan's Labyrinth is in the list, so maybe it's seven. But that's maybe a bit higher. I would say Get Out is next in terms of scary levels. Okay. And again, another Peach. I think this could be a Peach-compatible film. Um, It's just very, like, the whole time, and and I I don't mean this as, like, a detraction from the film at all, but its, its message is very overt. And I guess I think it's hard to be scary and have a point sometimes and do them both exactly well at the same time. And I think if there's one thing that takes away from Get Out, it's the whole time you're being like, ah, I see what it's saying, rather than being like, ah, I'm terrified. Oh, that's really interesting because I think I tried to shield myself from spoilers for Get Out and there was that really long wait between when it came out in America and everyone was raving about it and we got it way later in Australia. So I really had... uh, you know, I really blocked all the spoilers, put my hands over my eyes, didn't read anything. So when, and I'll just briefly mention the auction scene in the movie, I was like, what the hell is going on? So I found that really scary because yeah. it was very unsettling. Is this so, where the blind guy buys a photograph that I still can't get my head around? Why does the blind guy like this guy's photography? Well, no, he's buying the guy's uh, body, basically. So remember, it's like, White people with either aging or shitty bodies implant their consciousness yeah. into the bodies of black people who then get sucked into the sunken place. So he, yes. it was like an auction for a person. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, it was ago. like it Sorry. was like it's it, which it was it was a new version of slavery, but like cultural slavery. Yeah, there okay, were, sorry, were, yes. Were, it was working on like many levels. I mean, you, you could never call Get Out a simplistic movie, but it was very overt. Yeah, okay. So, Subtlety is not its strength. Yeah. Yeah. I think what made it really effective, and maybe it was because I hadn't read anything about the movie that deeply before I watched it, is that these guys the white people at this party present themselves as, hey, I'm a good guy. I would vote for Obama a third time if <laughs> I could. That's right. They're like presenting themselves as like really benign, affable people. And then so you don't expect them to have a really <laughs> deeply unsettling, you know, motive for what they carry out and also what they're capable of. So that's what makes it a bit scary. Okay. And then the next scariest is, I'm not going to say it because it's going to be the movie. We talk about so just setting up a little and then I think there's two left. I would say um, Train to Basan, which is great. What Get Out is less scary than Train to Basan? Yeah, yeah. I I thought I'd watch Train to Basan. Oh, then you can you can handle Get Out. Get Out is not that scary. It's really not. Yeah, Train to Basan is amazing because there's a lot of, I mean, I think laugh screaming. Because yeah. you just can't believe this is happening and it's so horrifying but funny. And also... And let's go back to that to that film because, you know, when we were talking about the scene when they are coming down the escalator and there's, a, there's like a wave of zombies coming up for them, it's a tense scene, but it's scary because you don't have time to react or think about what's happening. You were just like, what would I do in this situation? And while a lot of the film is kind of played like a little bit cheekily and a little bit action adventure Steven Spielberg in the 80s sort of thing, that scene is genuine zombie movie horror. Can I, can I press both of you on something, Shag, you just said, the what would I do in this situation point? And I do, I've been wondering for a few episodes now whether that's one of the fundamental things that scaredy cats of horror films get scared about, that mm. we imagine ourselves in the scenario which is why we can imagine the lady in black jumping out when we're, you know, taking the bins out at 11 p.m. on a on a Sunday night or whatever. Lee Tran, is that what sometimes spooks you? The idea that the paranormal activity demon might come and get you if you, you know, dive too deeply into that world? I think it's more like the lack of cardio exercise in my life <laughs> catching up with me when I realise there's no way I can outrun a horde of zombies who are pretty fit for, like, the undead. They've got a lot of athletic ability. This is such a good point, right? Because if you get a cross-section of society and you tell them, hey, run 100 metres, half of them maybe will do a pretty uh, You know what? In fact, I don't know. But a portion of them will do mm. a pretty good job. Some of them will run a bit and not be able to. Some of them won't even start. Some of them will be like, I can't, like, no run. But then you get a cross-section of society and turn them all into running zombies and they all run. I don't know if that's, like, a, a bit of a problem with zombie running movies in general. Yeah, maybe there's a, a, uh, a zombie gene that turns you into, like, a Usain Bolt or, like, an <laughs> Olympic-level athlete. That's how we crack the meters <laughs> under 10 seconds. Men's division, women's division, zombie division. Yeah, <laughs> zombie division. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Train to Passant. Also, what makes Train to Passant scarier than the moments like because they have to get from carriage to carriage, and there are all these obstacles. And there's that one scene where 
they have to get past a whole carriage of zombies and they need to do it when um, the train goes through the tunnel because when it's dark, the zombies can't detect you and they're crawling so slowly on the kind of carriage racks. And, of course, you're getting a stomach ache from... Uh, thinking they're not going to make it because they have to crawl so slowly. Otherwise, they'll be set upon. So, yeah, I found Train to Busan quite scary for that. But also, you know what? Train to Busan, and I say this as someone who hasn't watched a lot of horror movies, so I may be wrong here, but I found it was one of the horror mo- few horror movies I watched where I actually really felt for the characters, and I felt mm. like I knew who the characters were. And when they were killed, it was bloody devastating. Like, yeah. I might have even wiped away a tear at the end. <laughs> but that's it, right? Like a, a truly great horror film, and there aren't that many, and definitely not everything we've covered, make you feel for the characters. So when they do die, like when the young girl in Hereditary dies, it sucks. It's dev- It's not just like, oh, whoops, that happened. It's like, no, why did this happen? Why is this happening in this world? It's probably one of the reasons why a really good horror movie should throw your world off its axis slightly because you get attached to these people and then they get ripped from you in the most awful, unfair ways. Or like your your approach to things gets flipped on its head. Like the witch still stays with me Ooh. when like you're almost like, yeah, man, like kill, like kill this family. That's great. Kill these babies. Let's do I it. I also love how the witch is one of the few horror films that has really entered the, the social discourse in the sense that I see a lot on social media whenever something happens with like Satanism or like, you know, oh, I'm going to make a deal with the devil or a black goat. People are like, Ooh, do you want to live deliciously? <laughs> like I love how that line has invaded popular culture. Anyway, Lee Tramp, we are getting to the number one film. scary movie that you've seen. At, so you are, a, you are a legit scary cat. You've seen like seven <laughs> scary movies in yes. your time, including the one we're covering today. Yes. What is number one? Oh, well, I forgot about Pan's Labyrinth. So I'd say it's maybe number two, just because okay. of the creepy monsters. Uh, and the number one, which I saw with you mostly by watching the ceiling during the freaky parts. <laughs> uh, so mostly... I remember the ceiling of the cinema a lot. (laughs) Uh, It was us, actually. That would have been pretty scary. I found that much more scarier than Get Out. So when you look at ceilings of cinemas now or ceilings of buildings that remind you of ceilings of cinemas, do you get flashbacks (laughs) and and us? Do you get flashbacks to us? No, I don't. I think because... You were sitting next to me, so I think yeah. you probably heard me kind of like laughing nervously. We've spoken lot. about we've yes. spoken about this on the episode we <laughs> yes. had with you last time. Yes, I, you yeah. you were making it very clear that yeah. you were not dealing. <laughs> yeah. Was this a near friendship ending laugh? Like we sort of ventilated <laughs> Shag in your fortieth birthday episode that, that 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 Shag and my wife had a bit of a moment of tension when Al did a like la 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 fingers in the ears during training day. No, I, no, I don't no, know. no. And, and this is true. Okay? And, and this is absolutely true. It was one of those moments where Lee Tran, you're like an, and uh, like you're a near perfect human. It's like, oh, geez, where are your like, where are the things that are bad about Lee Tran? And then I sat next to you during us and I'm like, oh no, she does have faults. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, fuck, thank God. Thank it's very, God. It's very human uh, of you, Lee Tran, to, yeah. to ruin the movie you. for yeah. someone else. <laughs> that and my poor cardio kind of breaks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't want you in my post apocalyptic gang. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I would be definitely the first one to go, right? When, yeah. Uh, the apocalypse apocalypse happens or maybe when you get when you get zombified you go zero to a hundred real quick so oh, zombie yes. lee tran 
would be like an inversion of real life Lee Tran. So straight away you're like, yep, I've got that zombie, that zombie power. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking, what what did us, you know, what was it about us that was so scary? I think it was that creepy voice. The oh, creepy... Oh, the... <sighs> Well, yeah. But what about, no, you know what was creepy? And I think, like, it, if I was going to try and rank my top 100 scary scenes I've seen, I think this would be high up the list. The scene where he goes outside and there's a family that looks just <sighs> like his family just standing there carrying scissors. And he's like, get out of here. And then they all run separate directions into the bushes and forests around his house. <sighs> and yeah. he lives in a house in a suburban area that's very leafy with neighbours not very close, surrounded by glass walls that are not very safe. That was a terrifying scene. Yes, uh, which I watched via your expression. (laughs) (laughs) Which you heard, you listened to. All right, so I, I, you know, like, it makes a lot more sense now because I was interested why you suggested this film that we were going to do today. But it was a film I wanted to see as well, so I'm really glad we're doing it. But now it makes sense when you said that your limit is the monsters on Buffy because this film definitely reminds me of all of the sort of teen... You know how, like, Netflix seems to have about a million different teen series that are all up to seasons five and six, that gens, gen, like, Zoomers seem to know everything about, like, there's, you know, Euphoria and all of these other different se- series that are all about these, like, young teenagers living today that are all kind of, like, quasi-woke shows. And, like, I, I don't know anything about these cultures because I never watch these shows because they're fucking boring. But watching Sex education's this, interesting. But, but watching this film, I was like, wow, okay, this film reminds me of all of those tv shows it's definitely like a it's like a teen film for now except the deaths are incredibly brutal how like before we mention this uh, before we mention the film and watch the trailer and go into the synopsis lee tran i've got to ask how did you deal with the incredibly brutal death scenes in this film well so one of my tricks with watching stuff on netflix is i have the closed captioning on so often that helps like when an actor mumbles something and you don't have to like try to rewind and work out what they say. And it's also good because um, it tells you the song credits so you don't have to like shazam what song they're playing. But the other good thing, if you're a scaredy cat, when you're watching something with closed captioning on, as soon as it says ominous music, you know exactly what's about to happen. And it literally does say ominous music. And also, one of the good things about horror is it does telegraph things quite yes. far in advance. And that's how I got through us. Like, as soon as there was, I don't know, a, a violin or some kind of, like, <laughs> escalation in the score, you're like, ah, oh, someone's getting brutally murdered in the next minute. All right, Peach. Well, look, I know we've kind of gone easy on you in the last couple of episodes. So uh. even though this film is only the third scariest film Lee Tran, a certified scaredy cat, has ever watched... The death scenes are brutal, and I'm going to take it upon myself to describe what happens to them. So prepare yourself. Today we're doing a film that only came out last month on Netflix called There's Someone Inside Your House. There's someone inside your house. Let's do it. You're in my house, so I can legally kill you! This isn't who I am. This isn't me. Seems the killer wore a mask with the victim's face and was intent on exposing intimate information. Jackson Pace took a knee on the field of life. Hope they're serving fireball up in paradise, brother. Now I'm gonna die. 
Doesn't make sense, you know? Why would the killer go after Jackson? Got secrets. Careful out there, friend. Crazy people in this town. Uh, I have a secret. I accidentally ran over a hitchhiker and dumped his body into the ocean. Is that bad? Shit, there's someone wearing Rodrigo's face! You guys just are who you are. You don't have any secrets. He's wearing a mask on my face and he's forcing me to record offensive hate speech and I uh, I don't like Achilles heels getting sliced. Oh. It just feels like something that could accidentally happen, like just with a whisper of extra unfortunateness. You guys, uh, look, there are children in your lives from time to time. Someone at a shopping center has banged a trolley into the back of your legs. And there's something very, 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 very evocative about the knife behind the Achilles heel because as a scaredy cat, that is a very conceivable thing to worry about if you're getting spooked out. Someone could just reach their arm out and slice your Achilles heel. That's a really good point, right? Like there are are classic horror gore tropes of gross-out deaths. There's the obvious sharp implement in the eyeball which has been around since the 70s you know in I, I i'm really keen to find out which movie did that first but it's it's a it's a clear one filmmakers reach to when they want to take the gore to extreme recently we saw in films like the furies it's slicing a face off which is so full-on but it, it but it is a thing but the problem with both of those is there's no extra fear to it except the fact that how shit would have been like it's like look yeah. it would suck if someone cut your face off but it's it's scary because it's gross. Whereas the idea that your most exposed point that you're not constantly looking at, the backs of your heels could be sliced open while you were looking somewhere else, is both gross and awful, but also really scary. You could be sitting on public transport, right? And there could be someone right right now, if you're listening to some public transport, there could be someone crawling under your seat with a very sharp knife whose whole thing is slicing Achilles tendons and they could be just about to slice your Achilles tendon right now. Imagine wow. imagine if you were working late at work, you're in an open plan office, mm-hmm. everyone else has gone home, yeah. maybe it's got those sensor lights so the light above you is working but all the mm. lights around you aren't working. Although maybe one is on somewhere else and you're like, I wonder why that one's oh, on because no one else is here. malfunctioning one, malfunctioning again. It's probably again. malfunctioning. Like maybe look down. Just maybe have a look down under your seat right now. Just see what's going on. If you're sitting at a desk right now, can you see through the top of the desk? Is it a glass desk? And if not, there could be someone under there. I don't want to, like, devalue your fear, Pete, because I think Mm. all fear is legit. And you're obviously (laughs) referring to... All fear is equal. (laughs) Yes. You're you're referring to a scene in the trailer and also happens very early in the movie where... You know this dude is a douchebag from the moment uh, it starts, but it's like a guy who's clearly like, uh, you know, a bit of a, a macho um, footy player or, um, mm. and he's obviously a terrible brother and he's like been horrible to all these girls because you hear him kind of like exhibiting all these terrible traits on the phone in a very exposition-heavy phone call to his <laughs> probably oh, just awesome. as terrible football I love mate. being mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah <too>. football <laughs> mate, uh, a teammate. And then, so then there's a scene where clearly someone's in the house and then there's a shot where you see a knife at, like, ankle level and it's about Ooh. to come out and he's about to, you know, get sliced. And I was like, 
come on, the logistics of someone getting underneath, <laughs> what, like a cupboard at ankle length? And then like stabbing with like remarkable aim because if you ever had to bend down to get a pen or like find something underneath your couch, you start to feel like a little back pain if you're like of the older persuasion like us. So I'm like, who's getting down there in this really awkward position? Not even the best yoga instructor could get into that position. I'm not sure if you guys have played hide and seek recently, but you do have that moment of like, oh, nah, no one's coming in here. Like, <laughs> like where like you just have to be like, if you've chosen your spot to be like, I'm going to wait right here for his Achilles tendons to walk past, you would like have to be supremely confident that at some stage your victim's coming through. Look, and it always comes back to charcuterie, I know, because that film is going to get made by Spooko Studios. But I've seen a lot of videos of food identities and chefs cooking in the kitchen. They'll often grab a couple of vegetables or a couple of things to cut at once, but you never see someone get two pieces of meat, two steaks or whatever, to slice, because even getting a knife to cut through one piece of meat is hard enough. Getting through two Achilles tendons at the same time with the same knife, a near impossible cut. And factor in the fact that you're hiding under a a, a, a wardrobe. Yeah, so you don't have the leverage to really... Yeah, like it just... Anyway, but let, let's get there. We will get there. Okay, so there's someone inside your house. 2021 American slasher film adapted from a 2017 novel of the same name by Stephanie Perkins. Now, I looked up an image of Stephanie Perkins. It's on her Wikipedia. I'm going to put the link to it in the chat because I want you to imagine... What an what a young adult writer looks like, a young adult horror writer looks like, and then I want you to have a look at this image and tell me if these two things align because it's like I never even thought like, and then I looked at it and it's like she definitely writes young adult horror. Like I've never seen anyone in my life who more writes young adult horror. I hope not to burst your bubble, but I <laughs> saw a photo of her. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. While doing research for this. And it's interesting because she usually writes, I think her first two young adult novels were more like romances set in Paris. And apparently part of the appeal of writing this book was that she's not the stereotypical person who would write like a really gory kind of slasher (laughs) narrative. And that's what she really wanted to do. And apparently she was really inspired by, I think, films like Scream. Uh, and oh. the heyday of like, I think was there that real spike in slasher films around the time of Scream? I've just realised I'm talking to two people who probably haven't seen Scream. Isn't it funny? But watching this, I was like, oh, I feel like this is what Scream would be like. I feel like I've watched Scream even though I haven't seen Scream. Scream's so cultural that I sort of don't know whether I have or haven't. Like, I, <laughs> like I've surely seen like the, the you know it starts with Drew Barrymore who's on the poster. I can imagine what house she lives in. You know, at some stage they're at a radio station. You know, I'd like I know what the spooky ghost face looks like. You, you, you know, I, I couldn't tell you whether I have or haven't seen it at some sleepover in the mid nineties, mid to late nineties. Maybe I have. So th- this film is basically Scream. This is nice. this is a Netflix teen version of Scream. In the same way that Scream was pretty brutal, this is pretty brutal. It's actually probably a bit more brutal than Scream, or at least the way I remember Scream to be. It's also super woke and almost like a little bit too on the um, nose woke, yeah. but it probably works for teenagers. Like I'm guessing teenagers are the market for this film. That's the that's the experience of the sort of Netflix drama that you're referring to that I, that 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 we've fallen in love with in our house called Sex Education, 
where like there's a profound like trans storyline of a character who doesn't want to identify with any gender and the most attractive jockey dude in the whole thing is like vigorously pursuing this person um, regardless of their identity and so it's like a huge plot point of like being like you see um there are valuable attractive people who choose not to identify with any gender and i'm like yes yes this is a valuable thing to say and then sort of the second lead story of this current season is an extremely attractive um, young female lead who is in a sort of on-again, off-again romance with a person who's profoundly disabled and doesn't have command over, over many, of the, uh, many of his physical um, abilities that, 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 that other people do have command over and is nonetheless seen as a viable, attractive um, sexual partner. And so there's a degree where you're like, yes, yes, it is very important that um, the full range of people, you know, in society are uh, like available to be in love and be the objects of desire and be, you, you know, you can be friends with them, you can be in love with them, you can just have sex with them without being friends with them because they're, you know, desirable sexual, um, sexual pe- like people and entities as well. But there is that element of it sometimes feeling like homework of like, yep, 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 cool, 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 cool. I get it. This is a good view to have and I endorse this view. I, I like I, I I see what you're saying, Peach, because mm. like I, I've said this before, but you know, working in marketing, I see the briefs for ads and videos that come out, uh. and every brief now because there, there's a push for diversity in our industry, but it's still at a very infantile By white level. guys. White guys are pushing well, for diversity. Problem, white right? guys so start. The problem yeah. isn't the problem isn't get lots of different backgrounds to make stuff. It's just mm. put them in our like in our ads and stuff. So you like, I see the briefs that say diversity and then the casting directors come back with a Benetton ad. And that's why every ad <laughs> looks like a Benetton ad because all of these agencies, like we've sold it, we've sold diversity. And this it's is like, identical in the legal industry. Like all the rich white guys that own law firms are like, oh, make sure the paralegals we hire are a nice, like broad range and make sure they end up in the promotional brochure for yeah. the firm for hiring new people. Yeah. I would say a key difference between sex education, which seems to like handle um, the topics and the people it covers with some depth or dimension mm. is that in uh, this movie, which I always keep forgetting the title of because I keep wanting I know, to say... I know, getting it wrong. Yeah, I keep wanting to say there's a call coming inside your house, but it's actually called <laughs> There's Someone Inside Your House. Is this... I mean, the premise is basically these supposedly problematic people who are all teenagers end up being killed by the serial mm. killer. Um, also, with apology, Lee Tran... Imagine if we were all punished by capital punishment for bad stuff we did as teens. Like every teen, like we would all be dead. Like no one would survive teenagehood. Well, I was going to bring this up because I was kind of wondering if the film would maybe make an interesting nuanced point about maybe when you're 14 or 16 or 17, your brain is literally still forming and you do some shitty stuff that later as an adult you realize you shouldn't have done and hopefully Mm -hmm. have room for growth um and development and remorse and you know reckoning Uh, there's like maybe a second where it addresses it but it doesn't really do it but i would say with sex education it feels like you actually have human beings on the show like when eric goes to nigeria and has to grapple with being a guy who's very proudly gay but going to uh, a country uh which you know that's his family's country of origin yet homophobia is rife because 
being gay is banned in Nigeria. Like that is dealt with with um, mm. complexity. Whereas in there's someone in your inside your house, it's a bit like <laughs> this guy's just a jock and okay, off with his feet. He should be dead. You know. <laughs> And uh, I completely agree. And just for anyone listening, as opposed to watching, and I realise it's only the three of us watching, Lee Tran and Shag need to glance at their notes to remember the name of this film every time they come <laughs> it's to so true. It's, they come well, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it, I, I'm amazed there hasn't been a film called There's Someone Inside Your House Already. It is a very 1973 name. But yes, There's Someone Inside Your House. Let's do this film. Like, that is why we're here, in fairness. We are here to talk about this film, so I'm available too. Okay, so the movie starts with this stereotypically terrible, and I love the fact that even though this is uh, set in an American high school and, you know, Australians have been so bombarded with American high school imagery that we probably know it as well as we do our own experience going to high school in Australia. Mm. I love Lee Tran that you called him a footy player, so I'm going to call him a footy player (laughs) for the rest of this. So our uh, stereotypically dickhead jock footy player, Jackson Pace, walks into his residence. No one seems to be home. To Lee Tran's point, he has a very exposition-heavy phone call where he's like, (laughs) yep, going to the game later on about 9 o'clock. It's about 5 now, so I'm going to... Have a nap because I've got about four hours. I'm going to have a nap. Yep, yep. No, I heard about that girl. Yep, yeah. I'm going to do awful things to her and I'm not going to treat her well because I'm the sort of guy that doesn't treat girls well. Okay. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Anyway, when he, when he goes into the house. Name one teenager who would make a phone call. One contemporary teenager. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, a teenager would never do that, ever. Well, Peach, uh, maybe we'll get to this later, but. There were red flags throughout this movie where I was like, this is so profoundly unconvincing in many ways. But there's a whole scene where they go through cassette tapes, right? They go through cassette tapes, which probably were on their way out when these teenagers were born. Mm. So I was like, why would they have, why wouldn't they just like stream a song on their phone? And then there's another part that maybe you'll get to, sorry, where the killer keeps like printing out photos, um, in the lead up to scaring and then killing it, their victim. And I was like, which teenager has the budget to be like printing out so many glossy, <laughs> incriminating photos and then, yeah, putting it all over the house? Not even teenagers. Who in 2021 has a printer in their home? <laughs> That's right. Like, who, who the fuck does? I... I have one here in the home office that I don't tell work or clients or opponents about. I'm just like, no, I don't have a printer. I can't. You'll have to, <laughs> you have to send it to me. But okay, so so okay, so Jackson, uh, dickhead, making this phone call. He goes into the kitchen. He notices an egg timer that he's never seen before That's on good. the kitchen table. That's a really nice trope, I think. Oh, like, it's, yeah. it's really good, right? Mm, and it's sticking mm. away and he's like, that's weird, but he doesn't make anything of it. He goes upstairs. He's like, I'm going to have a nap before the game. He wakes up when it's dark and there's the implication that he's woken up later than he needed to and he's you know, missed whatever the game. He wakes up and all of a sudden the egg timer that was originally on the kitchen table is now next to him and it's woken him up by going off, mm. which I think is super scary. So he goes downstairs and he sees the front doors unlocked and he's like, that's fucking weird. He goes back inside, closes the door, and then on the screen it goes, there is someone inside your house is the title. It's a really well done opening sequence. He goes back inside, he calls 911 and they're like, what's your emergency? 
and he's about to speak and then he notices a photo that's been printed. And we don't quite see what the photo is yet, but it's something that makes him all of a sudden not want to speak to the authorities and puts the phone down. He then discovers photos have been stuck on the walls of his house leading up to a bedroom upstairs. I assume it's his parents' bed. I don't know why I just assume it's his parents' bedroom, but I do assume it's his parents' Well, bedroom. it couldn't be his, could it? Because he was just asleep in his. Actually, that's a really good point. Mm. Yes, yeah, so, so it leads up to his parents' bedroom. As we sort of see more of these photos, we notice it seems to feature him being pulled back in, the, in a fit of rage and somebody else with a shirt over their head, bloodied, and he's been beating another player of his footy team up mm. in some sort of a hazing ritual. And again, I got this from a review of it. Like, it's it's not super clear. It's, it's kind of cool that they don't just spell it out, although maybe it's just bad filmmaking and they don't make it super clear. <laughs> but it, that's, that's what he's seen, and that's why he's just kind of like, hang on, what the fuck? Why, what, number one, why are there photos of this? And why are you doing this to me? So he goes up to his parents' bedroom and there's nothing in there except their walk-in closet is closed. Oh, and in fact, before it goes in, so Wikipedia gives a bit of an insight into this. So the photos were taken on a night when Jackson had beaten another student at his school, Caleb. Now, Caleb is another football player on the team who they call out as, as gay and thus maybe the reason he beat him extra hard as part of this hazing ritual, ritual was because he was gay who ended up having a fractured jaw and other serious injuries as part of this. Okay. So he grabs a golf club from his parents' golf club set and he's like, whatever you think you know, whatever you think's happening here didn't happen. And then he walks into his parents' walk-in wardrobe and then there's just photos everywhere. And they're just printouts of the night. There's photos of his face. There's photos of Caleb's face, all printed all around. And he's holding it and he's freaking out. And then it's kind of funny. He's like, hey, just so you know, just because you're in my house, I can legally kill you. And he takes a swing at, like, some of the clothes and obviously doesn't hit anyone. And then we get a top-down shot of him and we see a hand with a really long knife just slowly sneak out behind his ankles. And then we get a close-up shot of the knife slicing his ankles the Achilles tendon snapping going out like the, the the going out and blood just spraying everywhere it's like there's no pull away there's no pull away just as it slices we see the injury and he immediately just falls to the ground right it's just yeah 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 so Jackson then discovers the intruder who steps out is wearing the school sort of sweatshirt and um, sweatpants uh, hoodie up is wearing a mask, like a 3D printed mask that's of Jackson's face. So good. That's that. That's really fun. That is really fun. It's super fun, right? It's mm. such a good start to a film. Mm. Jackson's basically like, I can Venmo you some money, which I thought was really funny. And he's like, you know, this is, you don't understand all these photos. This isn't. And then he sees the face and he's like, this isn't me. And then the guy just like stabs him right in the chest and kills him. Uh, look, I'm sure 3D printing is great, but I'm not going to, like, see someone with a 3D printed version of my face and be like, oh, fuck, is that me? Like, I'm still me. Like, <laughs> like it's uh, someone wearing a reasonably okay 3D printed mask of me isn't going to, you know, undermine my grip on reality, I don't think. I thought it was more of, like, a heavy, like, thudding metaphor of, like, 
oh, this isn't me, but it is me because I did it. Uh, <laughs> this is yes. like a physical representation of yeah, what nice. I did. Now, at this point, we cut to the football game and we see a family who we assume is Jackson's dad and younger sister and mom all watching. And they're like, where the fuck's Jackson? And the dad's like, I'm sure he's here. And then he gets a message and he's like, this must be him. But then every single person in the football stadium gets the same message. And it's the video of Jackson beating the shit out of Caleb. I like it. Is that what revenge porn is? Like, I'm so out of touch with Venmo no, and no, 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 teenagers no, no. taking phone calls. Okay. No, no, no. Revenge porn's awful and it's being legislated against and it's 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 not even it's not a fun topic to broach on this cool. podcast. Well, I regret raising it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually it victimizes women. Like usually it, it's usually ex boyfriends taking intimate photos of their former girlfriends and then using it against them. Yeah. Well, sorry for bringing the mood down. <laughs> Everyone, they didn't talk about it on sex education. They didn't teach me not to raise it. So people believe that Caleb was beaten up because he was gay. Caleb never reported the incident, and now he is more embarrassed to face the entire school, which would pass judgment on his sexuality. People, but so so now because of all this happened, I don't know why that line is in this Wikipedia because that doesn't really come up in the film. All that comes up in the film is that everyone now thinks Caleb did it. So they all go to school the next day and there's kind of a funny scene where... Why would they think that? Isn't that the absolute last thing Caleb would do if it was him? It's more like he's shunned in the hallways. So okay. there's, there's a couple of scenes now where we meet our protagonist. Wouldn't we be nicer to someone we suspect would kill us? Anyway, <laughs> that's, okay. That's yeah. a good point. There are a lot of red herrings in the movie and yeah, they don't okay. always make sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. sorry, yeah, like, sorry for it's, dropping It's a 90-minute film, which is great, but they try to cover way too much in 90 minutes, including yeah, okay. having a cast of midfits. There's like five or six we all they, that all have to have backstories, Ugh. that all have to be suspects for us to work out who the fuck, you know, is doing these killings. There's also a really funny scene where one of our main girls, Makani puts a card on the memorial that says get well soon <laughs> and she's like the store was all out of really sad cards that was the only one they had left which was a really funny moment that was probably one of the best moments in the movie <laughs> <laughs> so so people believe caleb hired a killer because he was at the football game at the time of the tragedy uh we then introduced to a group of friends so there's makani young who's kind of our hero she yeah, okay. originally was from hawaii but she's moved to this small Nebraskan town under suspicious circumstances and she keeps having flashbacks to a fire and something happening around a fire. We're suspicious of her, are we? We're suspicious of all of these characters. So there's Alex Alexandra Crisp, who I think is just the bitchy one. There's Zachariah Zach Sanford, who has a really rich dad who seems to be like buying up most of the town because it's a small town. And he's the his dad's the the, the classic small town villain. There's Darby, uh, and then there's Rodrigo Duran, who I think is the one that has a pill problem. I think. I yeah. thought you'd want a diverse property portfolio if you're going to be the rich person. You don't just sort of 
just double down on one very small market being all the property in one small town. That's very makes strange. no sense. It makes but no sense. Someone's got but, some bad advice, yeah. So they're the loser crew, and Caleb can't sit with the cool guys anymore because everyone thinks he did it. So the cool group let him sit with them, which gives us a good exposition scene where they can all explain which character they are and what their backstory is. Which we is get cool. it, Caleb. I've also got a secret that I won't <laughs> tell you about now. <laughs> The school student council president, Katie Coons, comes into the lunch hall, announces herself as a total bad guy and total mean girl because she gets on a table and she's like, I think we all need to... uh, I I, I think we all need time to mourn. And I just want to talk about the fact that, you know, Princess Di once said that the one thing that holds us together is tolerance. So I just want to shout out to Darby. So Darby is one of the members of the uncool crew. Now, Darby's backstory is that he has recently transitioned and Darby's new pronouns are he and him and didn't want to make a big deal out of it. But Katie turns Darby into a big, like, I'm tolerant of Darby and I don't care what Darby wants to be called. I'm going to accept Darby. And I think we should all have a moment of silence for, you know, Jackson who died and let's be more tolerant of people like Darby in the future. And which which then allows Darby to be like, I'm going to fucking kill Katie, making Darby also a suspect. So everyone, they, oh, they, they very quickly try to be like, everyone's a fucking suspect. Was that your read of this scene, Lee Tran? Um, yes, and also to tick a few kind of like, oh, as you were saying, this film is very woke boxes, but yet that character's never allowed to develop into anyone with dimension. I don't think that character ever actually says anything except, oh, I want to kill Katie. I think Darby's only line is that he says, I want to kill Katie. I think that's it. I think that's the only time. Oh, and then the Darby is training to go to NASA and eventually somewhere through the film, spoiler alert, gets accepted into NASA's, like, student program. I don't know. But, like, there is no group in society less believable when they say, I want to kill someone than teenagers. Like, teenagers <laughs> would say that. Every, like, surely that's all they, that's like all they say. <laughs> so, 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 so. The, so the losers have this exposition chat. They also notice a student, Ollie, looking at them, which scares them because Ollie... No, there's no ever reason for it except <sighs> everyone keeps being like, he's the sociopath. He's scary. Something happened with his parents. And unbeknownst to everyone, Ollie and Makani have had a bit of a secret fling. This like this, this film is exhausting. Yeah, just with the number we're of like things. ten minutes into it. Oh god. <laughs> okay. So Zach the Rich Kid has his car graffitied uh, because most people hate him because of his rich land developer father. I'm reading this verbatim. Mm. Uh, who, and his father's name is Skipper Sanford, just so you know. Great name. Makani, who, remember, moved here in suspicious circumstances from Hawaii, lives with her sleepwalking grandmother, has flashbacks of a burning fire and screaming. Also, her grandmother sleepwalking is also a plot device because at some point during the movie... The grandmother has to go to a sleep clinic, leaving Makani home alone. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah. So the next day at the church for a memorial for Jackson, Katie, our evil student body president, is setting up and is chatting to who she thinks mm-hmm. is her friend up on the upper like level of the church. Mm. And all of a sudden, while she's chatting to this person who's not uh, replying to her she gets a message from them being like hey sorry katie i'm feeling ill today i won't be able to make it to church 
And Katie calls them and it's like, ha, 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 really funny. I was just chatting to you. And the person's like, well, you definitely weren't because I'm at home. And then Katie's like, well, who was I chatting? Was it someone with a 3D mask who looked just like you? Yeah, yeah. Now, so- now this is the second reason why I'm really happy we're talking about this film because I think this is a very clever horror movie scene that I don't think gets used enough. A church is a very difficult place to escape from because of pews. Ah, uh, good call. This is this is, this is your point about escalators and train to Busan last week. Yeah, okay. Put people in a scary situation where they can't get out. So she then... And, and now, before this mask figure appears, on the screen that was showing those, like, you know, the images of Jackson in his life, it starts playing a podcast episode that apparently she was a guest on where she talks about how there are scientific differences between the races and, and some races are just smarter than others and that's not being racist, that's Goal. just good science. <laughs> and if libtards want to say they're the side of science, then they have to accept that. So she notices that playing and then notices a figure with her face wearing you know, the, the, the church robes, carrying a knife, and at first she's like, Hey, that that was just a joke. I was I was parodying people like that, and then realizes this person isn't playing, and she's like, "Well, like whatever, blah 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 blah," and then is like, "Oh fuck, I've got to get get away from this person." She runs to the back door. The person in the mask does the scary head tilt thing. Yes. And just slowly walks towards her. She notices the door is locked, and then this person slashes her stomach. Blood goes everywhere, and then she falls to the ground and starts crawling underneath the pews. At this point... Am I going to be deeply unsatisfied by the identity of the killer? Like, uh, I'm probably. just... Yeah, I'm just starting to be like, yeah, okay, okay. We've got a bit it, of a revenge social justice How are you kill- feeling at this point? Because I was like, these are some cool... I'm, like, into this. How are you feeling at this point, Lee Chang? I thought, look, ultimately, in the end, it wasn't as smart as I thought it would be, but I thought it could be, like, a really, you know, ironic, funny, interesting commentary about you know, supposed cancel culture, which I'm so tired of being covered because it's the same people covering cancel culture, basically people who are scared of being caught out going, how dare we be found accountable? You know, the same way people use woke as... um, I mean, we kind of jokingly have used woke in the description of this film. Uh, But I'm not really offended if someone tries to, like, actually be inclusive or diverse or representative. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's... Even if it's an ad company trying to do something that cynically, I don't know, sells more bags or cars, ultimately it's a good thing to see more representation on screen. But I don't think... Yeah, I thought this would maybe explore cancel culture in an interesting way. It doesn't really... Like, the first two kills are kind of interesting, mm. uh, but then there's some other kills where you're like, oh, does that... Is that really a comment on, like... <laughs> yeah. uh, on Achilles tendon problematic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be really disappointed by the next death, mm. particularly. I remember I was watching this with Adele, and we were like, no way is this going to be the secret. And we're like, oh, yeah, this is a secret. Anyway, all right, so, so she is then crawling under the pews. Again, a very scary scene because she's looking left to right and she can't see the killer. And obviously, crawling under the pews, you're still very trapped. So she makes it out of one of them and she turns around and the killer's just standing on the seat. And she notices the confession box is open. So she runs to that. The killer scarily head tilt walks towards the confession booth. She locks herself in 
And while she's sitting in there, all of a sudden, we see the knife get jabbed through the wall. And she's like, ah! And then it gets jabbed through another wall and another wall and another wall. And then at one point, it gets jabbed through the wall right in front of her face. And at this point, she calls 911. And it's actually pre- it's a pretty funny moment because she's like, the first thing she says when she calls 911 is, oh, hello, hello, yes, I'm, I'm trapped with the killer and they forced me to record a really racist <laughs> podcast. <laughs> That's so good. And while she's on the call, the killer appears behind her, pushes through the wall, and pushes her face onto the knife. And again, it's a very brutal death. It's pretty gruesome. I did see that bit. I had wondered, though, if they could have done something funnier and more pointed, like, I don't know, she gets killed with an iPad that has, like, a really uh, brutal review of her podcast or something, (laughs) like a one-star review. (laughs) <laughs> Worst white supremacist podcast ever or something, rather than just like, uh, okay, it's a gory kill. I sort of feel like there'd be scope for reversing the white supremacy of like jamming the phone into her mouth and like just continuing to like force it sort of like stomping it through her to like reverse the neo-Nazi sort of curb stomp. Like I thought that's where we were going. Well, I mean, yeah. look, also a side note, I wonder if you, if you are running a neo-Nazi podcast... If a one-star review, you'd be like, oh, fuck, maybe we shouldn't be Nazis. <laughs> Damn it. What were we doing? <laughs> anyway, anyway, so the people outside, you know, there's people trying to come into this service. The priest eventually shows up, unlocks the door, comes in, and that's when they are presented by this podcast still playing and uh, Katie are hung, you know, from the ceiling, uh, her body covered in blood, at a point where the podcast starts saying something like, they want our precious white bodies to be killed. Like, there's some very pointed moment from the audio and the scene, and it all sort of playing together. The movie gets heavily simplistic from here. So (laughs) that night, Makani Googles her name and finds nothing. But when she Googles Makani Sunwoo, which is not the last name she uses, she finds articles about her being arrested. That's an odd thing to do. That's an odd thing for Makani to do in her just spare time, to be like, let's just see what shows up on a Google search with my fake name. But she's realising that she's got a past that could also be punished, right? Ah, And then all of the teenagers are like, fuck, like we all have something, which again is a really cool thing to cover that they the film doesn't really cover anyway <laughs> the next day the entire school is being interviewed at the police station by the sheriff who is ollie's older brother ollie being the scary kid uh skipper releases zach much to his anger over being spoiled because zach's dad has like influence on the town and so zach just gets to be released without being interviewed bloody hell Sheriff Larson interviews the school and after asking Ollie if he knew who took his taser, so we now know that the taser is missing, uh, lets Makani go. Ollie drives Makani home. They begin to have sex in the car because they rekindle themselves, but are interrupted by a group of people running over to Zach's house as he's holding an impromptu party. At the party... Everyone is telling each other their secrets. So that's when all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, like God. we've, you know, like we've got license to actually open it, you know, and teenagers are fiercely guarded. But now all of a sudden teenagers have a real reason to be open. It's such a cool idea and it just doesn't get explored at all. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Like, so, yeah, the sort of cleansing, protective element of telling the truth. The, 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 the truth will set you free, literally. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe the worst secret is Makani says she writes poetry. 
<laughs> Which, to be honest, like... It's yeah, bad. Poetry, yeah, it is terrible poetry. Like, it is... I would be haunted by that. Po- I mean, everyone is haunted by their teenage poetry. So, fair call. But at least mine were, like, rewritten Smashing Pumpkins lyrics. Like, this is bad stuff. This is, like, the moon says hello to the sun at the end of the day. The sun has work to do. But the moon is just beginning. It's shit like that. It's like, how dare you? You deserve to be killed, McCartney. Mine were all just raps about why I was a good rapper and other people were bad rappers. So they haven't aged especially well either. Lee Tran, what were your poems like in high school? Oh, very terrible. I'm pretty sure I wrote like one inspired by Keanu Reeves and like sent it to, yes. you know, his fan club or whatever. Oh, yes! <laughs> yes. Oh yes. my gosh! I can remember the like floral stationery I used when I was like 14. That is the that is the best story you've ever told us. That is the best secret that's been revealed on this podcast. All right, okay, okay. So da, 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 da. at the party, everyone is telling each other their secrets, such as Alex saying she once ran over a hitchhiker by accident. She was joking. Her real secret is Alex and Rodrigo both have crushes on each other. So they then go into a kitchen and either make out or have sex. I don't know what's implied because they both come out of the kitchen getting dressed but they're also teenagers i assume they just go and make out or maybe i was just a really innocent teenager i don't know the the most i thought memorable part of that scene is someone knocks on the door when they're making out you're like oh my god the killer's here but it's just someone who just wants chips for the party (laughs) (laughs) and then i'm really offended because they hand out the chips and the guy's like salt and vinegar and i'm like salt and vinegar is easily the best flavor easy like without a doubt there is no better flat. Like it is anyway. Anyway, we don't. We well, let's just keep going. Okay. Lee Tran, you would agree, like just to get your professional oh, opinion, as your a professional food critic. Salt vinegar is the best chip flavor, right? Look, I've, it's definitely up there. Like that was one of many red flags uh, raised during the movie. Where they're like, <laughs> why are they just seeing salt and vinegar chips? Okay. All right. Alex is also weirded out by Ollie, who is watching them tell their secrets. And, and again, they're like, look at that sociopath. He's just watching us. He's only watching them because he came into the party with Makani. And then Makani joins her friends and pretends she doesn't know him, which is why he's watching them. And even at this point, Makani isn't like, uh, I've been sleeping with Ollie. She's like, I wrote poetry, which again, nice. is the worst thing she's ever done. In her life. <laughs> now, Zach at this point, Gets up on a table and he's like, now I know you all hate my dad and probably hate me. Ha ha ha. But here's something you didn't know about my dad. And then just opens this room that's full of Nazi memorabilia. And he's like, did you also know that my dad collects Nazi memorabilia? Which is actually kind of cool in the, in the, in the context of this scene where everyone's revealing scenes. He's like, well, guess what? My dad's a Nazi. Like, I'm just going to fucking tell everyone. And he's like, but I've turned all of this Nazi memorabilia into bong. So grab a gas mask, grab a pistol, grab a grenade. Because they're all bombs. But that's not a secret about him. That's a secret about his dad. That's his dad's secret rather than... No, yes. But, but then, but then, yes. either everybody, there's, a, there's a big montage where everyone grabs a like Nazi bong and starts getting high. Yes. Um, at the... Uh, and, you know, Alex and Rodrigo, Rodrigo kiss in a closet and, yeah, it's implied that they had sex. They leave mm. and while everyone's getting high... Rodrigo finds now Rodrigo as we've talked about has a problem like he's he's taking fentanyl pills and again it's not that much of a secret like people being addicted to prescription drugs isn't like a, a like it's a secret but it's not like the it's not in the same league as the two secrets we've already had right? and there was like there's literally an opioid 
epidemic. Like it affects so many people. It's not, I don't think it was really something that's shameful to, you know, to be murdered over the fact that, you know, you are addicted to opioids. But, to, a- but to, yeah, to, to conflate it with, you know, like hate speech or to conflate it with the assault and, you know, brutal bashing of a teammate, yeah, they're not the same. No, it's it, so dumb. It would only have been interesting if, say, it was like, um, you know, like the Sackler family who um, made a lot of money off OxyContin and, like, if that kid was, yeah. like, the heir to, like, the Sackler family or some, yeah. uh, you know, uh, dynasty that made a lot of money from opioid sales, then that would have been an interesting reason for the serial killer to go after them. But just to be like, oh, this kid took fentanyl. It's kind of a flat reason. Lee Tran, on our episode with the Furies, one of the suggestions I have was that the screenwriter ought to have been, and, and, and director as an auteur film, ought to have been just equipped with better friends, you know, who would have read the script or like read the manuscript of the book and been like, look, look, you know, good stuff, but you just need to, you just need to look at a couple of things. And I feel but, like but Lee some Tran, better like friends you've here. Written books, and my understanding of writing books is there are like eight people at the publisher who looks at it and goes, no, this isn't right. You've got to change this. I think with any project, there's a lot of people who look up. I mean, a lot of people have read the script. The director would have made changes. There are a lot of people involved. But I also think um, maybe there's a bit of a license with horror films and teen movies where you're just like, ah, we'll just let it pass. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, anyway, so his scary moment is he comes out of this closet after, you know, macking on with his potential new lover mm. who he's just revealed he has a crush on and he sees this trail of pills leading into the center of the party eventually leading to his pill bottle open on the ground when he picks it up everyone all of a sudden gets this message from from everyone that's like a meme that he is addicted to fentanyl and every and like weirdly all the teens are like what you're addicted to fat like like it's just half the moment. teens it's, would think that is cool yeah it's so like, like it's so weird anyway at this point the lights go out people start turning on their phone camera lights and someone sees the hooded killer wearing rodrigo's face mm. and someone's like the killer's here and it's actually pretty fucking cool but then just chaos ensues and it's completely dark people are using their phones and through this crowd, the killer starts chasing Rodrigo, eventually chases him outside, hits him with a taser, and then slices his neck open. Sick. And usually the sliced neck open isn't brutal, but somehow they make it so you see the flaps open Ooh, and yeah. you see the, the innards <laughs> exposed and the blood go everywhere. They even make a throat slit really, really gross. Oh, and also, he doesn't he fall into this big water bath that's full of fentanyl pills, which is like, how did the killer get all these fentanyl it's pills? so much fentanyl. He's like, so getting, getting fentanyl's the worst, but I'm going to get heaps of it in order to... Yeah. I feel like we only have a few more minutes, but there's like about yeah, let's... three more kills and the big reveal to go. Let's rush through this. Okay, so Ollie takes Makani to get a view of the ocean and they're like, but we don't live near the ocean. And he's like, but I've got a cassette tape of the ocean. What? So they go for a drive. Into Old a media. Corner. Like if I, if I brought you a DVD or a CD, would you be able to play it promptly? Either <laughs> of you? Like, what is, I'd be like, okay, let me download the driver for my PS5. It'll take yep. a couple of minutes. Yep. And then it'll something, I don't even know where the disc slot is in my PS5, but let's find it. Okay. Yeah. I agree. I yep. agree. But anyway, they drive out to this cornfield. They make out again. Ooh, but... While they're making out, 
Makani, well, after they make out and there's a moment where she's in the car, mm. she finds a taser gun in his car and he calls her by a real name because she's like, I want to get out of here. I don't trust you anymore. Mm. And he's like, is that why? Is that because I know that you're Makani Sun Woo? And she's like, did you do a fucking background check on me through your brother, who's a police officer? Are you the killer? And at this point, everyone thinks he's the killer. <sighs> she goes home. Now, remember, her mom, her grandma isn't at home because she's gone to a sleep clinic mm. very conveniently. And uh, she realizes she, she's a bit spooked. So she grabs a knife, goes upstairs, locks the door, goes to sleep. She puts a chair against the door as well. So no one puts can get in. Puts a chair against the door. Mm. Wakes up. Chair's gone, her door's open, and the knife's gone. Nice. Goes downstairs, there are no more knives in the knife block at all. Yes. That was really creepy, actually, when she looked at that and all the knives were gone. That was really good. And notices a fire burning in the next room, goes in, and she finds the fireplace burning, and there's pictures everywhere. The killer then comes in, and it's actually really fucked. The killer tases her then douses her in gasoline, like on her, like starting with her face, Mm. covering her in gasoline, Mm. grabs one of the images of her, of Makani's burnt victim in the fireplace, lights it, and is about to burn her to death. Mm. When he notices car lights coming in, her friend Alex comes in and Alex scares the killer away. Makani's like, it's Ollie, Ollie's the killer. He's done it. I know it. He's been here in the house. Later on, she awakens in hospital and she explains everything. She was part of another hazing... It it seems like it's an anti-hazing film. What? Because she was part of a hazing ritual when she was a swimmer in Hawaii when they, you know, they beat her up, they made her drink alcohol, they made her drink dog food. They basically put her in this stupefied state and one one of the older girls, Jasmine, is, like, antagonizing her. So without thinking, she pushed Jasmine into the bonfire that this was around causing Jasmine to have severe third-degree burns all over her body and essentially become, you know, crippled for the rest of her life. But that's Jasmine's fault, isn't it? Like, uh... Well, she, well, it's why she got acquitted, but she did go to trial. She okay. talks about the fact that, you know, the death reps never stopped. She could never live in this town again, mm. so she had to move to her grandma's farm and, you know, assume a new identity. So the next day, Skipper... The, the, the big bad guy of the town holds mm. a corn maze next to the school. Makani gets a message from Darby that Ollie has been released and spots him in his car. Makani runs inside the school and runs into Caleb, who is then stabbed through the back Ugh. by the killer. And then the killer hands the knife to Makani, who runs away. At this point, Ollie runs up and he's like, are you okay? And Makani's like, fuck, well, Ollie's not the killer. What's going on? Sick. And she's still holding this knife. And she holds the knife for a good long couple of hours because she's still got the knife when they confront the real killer. Anyway, Ollie and Makani's friends arrive and manage to save Caleb's life before Makani realizes that the killer is headed for the corn maze. Sick. When they get there, the killer has set fire to the maze with the football team inside. And Makani, Ollie, Alex, and Darby drive into the flames with their car to create like a path for people to escape. They find one of the football players with part of his side sliced off and another <laughs> with a slice wound over his chest before finding the rest and Alex and Darby help them escape. So we're now into this is the finale. Prepare Sick. to be disappointed. Oh. Ollie and Makani confront the killer who has walked into this maze, who set fire to the corn maze. Yes. And there's actually kind of a cool scene where he's got a fencing sword in his back. Yeah, okay. Like, because he's given his knife to Makani. So now he has his fencing sword. 
and they find the killer confronting Skipper in the corn maze, wearing a mask of his face. The killer then stabs Skipper through the like the base of the head, right into the top through the sword. Oh, yeah. It's such a brutal way to die by the sword. And then reveals himself to be Zack the rich kid. So he killed his dad, basically. He killed his, his dad, dad. Yeah. Yeah, And yeah. he's annoyed because he's like, I had this really cool speech to say to my dad, and now you've ruined it. Because I was going to be like, what did you, th- you know, is this what you expected when you gave me the art of war at my ninth birthday? Deal with a dad? And he's like, it sounds lame now, but that's what I was going to do. What? Anyway, he's like, but I've set fire to the corn maze. Sounds like something you would have done, Makani, right? I'm going to blame this on you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill Ollie. And I'm going to put the knife in your hand and you're going to be the killer and I'm just going to be saving myself from you. And they're kind of like, why did you do this? And he's like, because everyone wears a mask and they're not their true selves. (laughs) And I wanted to, but I can't wear a mask because everyone knows who my dad is and everyone hates me and my dad. So now you can all deal with your secrets being exposed as well. Wasn't that also a bit like it's hard to be a privileged white male as well? Yeah, that was the other thing. Yes, because then Makani is like, how can you have everything and make yourself the victim? That's so dumb. Anyway, so Zach monologues to Makani and says that he's going to frame all the murders on her and he's going to kill her as self-defense. But Ollie distracts Zach with the taser gun. Makani jams his own knife through his stomach before killing him by stabbing him again in the chest. And she takes a wounded Ollie out of the fire. And that's the end of there's someone in, it's not even really be about someone being in your house no no it's not about that the third kill happened in zach's house uh, you also left out the really terrible poetry that the movie oh ends God. on it's not even in here but yes it ends with them all going to graduation and uh, what? and makani reading out her poem that's like and though we face the darkness the dawn shines bright upon our future like the wind, you know, it, it sucks. It's the shittest poem. You're like, you should have kept your poetry a secret. You really should have. <laughs> Endings are hard, right? Endings are hard. <laughs> I get it. But I feel like this is the finest metaphor for endings being the difficult, the difficult thing to stick the landing. Netflix is probably the largest creative behemoth on earth at the moment. This was firstly a novel, then a screenplay, then a Netflix developed piece of art. I just can't believe how unimpressive that ending is. Bleh. It could have been so much smarter. I think the potential really was there, and it's such a shame that it was just so flat in the end. There are good elements. I like the idea of identifying your victim and wearing the mask of your victim. And, oh. I, and I sort of thought that that cunning escape would sort of be blamed. It's like, I killed Shag, and then I saw Shag running away from the murder scene. Oh, what? Like, would, would sort of be a part of it. Nah. Just sort of have the cool idea and don't think about it again. It's um, under-conceived. Once again, Lee Tran, thank you so much for joining Spooko. You are on top of so many projects, but if there's mm. one place I'd love people to check out, yes. you're, I, I subscribe to quite Podcast. a few Patreons. Yeah. Patreons? Patreons? I never know how to pronounce that. Patreons, mm. I assume. Patreon? Yeah. Patreon. 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 Podcast. Yeah. Patreon. I easily get the most value from yours. Yep. Uh, you do a roundup of like all the most interesting food happenings in the world that week, and you do a podcast about it. I learned so much about it. In fact, how do like how the like is your day mainly just reading up about what's happening in the food world? No, the good thing about like doing a Patreon podcast slash newsletter about this is 
you probably would read this stuff anyway, but you feel bad because you're like, oh, it's not really work or it's not really productive. And then <laughs> having a Patreon where, I don't know, you read an interesting article about what the history of melons in Uzbekistan or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or like deathmatch sober in Japan or something. You're like, oh, cool. I can like, you know, mention it to people and someone's going to get something out of it. And I've yes. done like a, a two-part Tokyo special that was really fun. I'm going to do like another kind of like Japan beyond Tokyo special. I've done one on like indie food mags. And yeah, it's actually really fun to do. Search out Lee Tran Lam. Search out the unbearable lightness of being hungry. Uh, if you're a fan, subscribe to a Patreon. I promise it is the most value you will get out of a Patreon this year, as long as you like food. If you don't like food, you'll just be like, why did I do this? <laughs> if you like food, you'll get a lot out of it. Uh, so so glad to have our Matreon um, Lee Tran swing, swing, swing by. LT, really appreciate you taking the time and thanks for, thanks for popping on to Spooko. Uh, thanks and thanks for repping uh, salt and vinegar chips and not letting the hatred stick. Like, stand up for salt and vinegar chips. They go well with the rush's long neck. Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up? So we go one, two, three. Lee Trent, with the greatest of respect, did you clap just then or did you just say clap? <laughs> oh, you're oh, okay. holding the mic. Yeah, no, you can't oh, hold the mic. That's sorry, sorry, hey, sorry. Hey, why don't we go one, two, three, clap. And uh, Lee Tran, can you just say clap really loudly? Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right. It'll just help <laughs> this, me sync this up. Okay, so... This what? is staying in the episode, by the way. This is great. <laughs> All right. One, One two, three. three. Clap. Yeah, love <laughs> yeah. that clapping.